Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wesper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. The Smithsonian Magazine Online has a great write-up on an exhibition that if you're in New York City, you can catch right now. It is called The Museum of Failure, <laughs> and it celebrates some of the world's biggest flops. So the idea here is that it wants to present failure as a critical learning opportunity, which we kind of all mm -hmm. know, yeah, best teacher is failure, blah, blah, blah. But it really sucks. Like, as a teacher, failure is kind of brutal and punishing and embarrassing and all the negative feelings that we try to avoid. But what this traveling exhibition is trying to do is point out, hey, we've all failed at some point, even the big dogs like Crystal Pepsi, new Coke. <laughs> like there have been some major missteps that are worth remembering. So the exhibition first launched in Sweden and it spotlights over 150 commercial ideas that didn't pan out for various reasons. Some other examples besides new Coke and Crystal Pepsi, the Bic for her pens. Remember those? Oh, no, I don't. But I can <laughs> oh, very I much do, imagine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes. Were they pink? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, there's a picture. They were pink and purple. And it had like for her and that beautiful feminine font that makes my blood boil uh -huh. every time I see it. And they're just top click pens that had no reason to be. Joking. They don't have hips. So, of like what? Why would you even? <laughs> <laughs> they also include things like limeade flavored Oreo cookies. Mm. Oh, what? Honestly, that sounds good to me. I'd give it a try. <laughs> they also had Colgate lasagna. Oh, <laughs> yes. what? Wait, wait, wait. Yes, and sadly, it's just the boring. We tried to diversify our business streams and make frozen food, not with two. Toothpaste in okay. the construction. Right, just Colgate just, brand. Correct. And yet nobody wanted to eat a savory frozen Italian dish from the makers of your minty mouth cleaner, right? <laughs> so anyway, you have tons of things to pour over here. The exhibition is curated by a Samuel West, a clinical psychologist who specializes in organizational science. And He's hoping this will normalize and demystify the concept of failure, which he sees as a critical learning opportunity. Quote, people feel liberated when they see big, well-known brands and companies that have extreme amounts of money and skills and experience, and they still fail when trying new things. Well, I mean, I think there's some element of that. Like if you're an MBA or you run a corporation and you're afraid of making a big move, I think on an individual level... I just want to laugh at the corporations. Like, I don't see myself as equivalent to a corporation, but I did see a thing a while back, I don't know, maybe like 10 years ago, there was some professor who created like an anti-resume. And he was like, everybody praises me all the time. Like, oh, you've done so much. He's like, you need to see all the things I tried and didn't do. And so he made Yay! a resume of like jobs he applied for and was rejected from and papers he wrote that were turned away. 
And it was massive. And that honestly felt from a personal level like a lot more relevant. Same. I love when authors tweet how many rejections they've had Mm -hmm. before they got a piece published. Mm -hmm. That ratio is so critical, but often overlooked. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for me to relate to a little bit because I don't have the money to fail like that. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you bring up a really good point. And also back to Jennifer's point about I just want to laugh at the big brands. Well, the big boys that we're talking about, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, they're not as keen to broadcast these things to the world. (laughs) After all, they spent lots of money to just kind of move on and pretend it didn't happen. And when Samuel West first began putting together the exhibition, he had to resort to finding these failed products on eBay and Craigslist because quote, nobody wanted to have anything to do with this because, you know, liability. Sure. (laughs) To sum it up, quote, you fail, but you gain insight, you build on it, you try a different version, you tinker, you come back again with something better. You want people to take meaningful risks and learn from them. That's where the action is. Okay, but you know what the funniest thing would be, right? If this museum fails utterly, like (laughs) if no one goes to see it, it'd be like, it was a performance piece all along. I did it on purpose. (laughs) That was on purpose. (laughs) All right. Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from Wired.com. It's titled, Your Next Landlord Could Be 100 Random People. Oh, good. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) So the three-bedroom, two-bath, split-level house in Fayetteville, Arkansas, looks like a perfect family home. It's on a quiet street with two schools and a boys and girls club nearby. But this perfect family home has an unusual owner or owners. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. (laughs) The property, which these days is known as the Soapstone, is owned in a roundabout way by 102 investors who have collectively purchased just over $100,000 in shares through a company called Arrived Homes. Investors can buy into hundreds of similar properties on the company's website, where each listing has an Airbnb-style profile that breaks down the neighborhood, costs, number of bedrooms and bathrooms, and return on investment. In addition to Arrived, there's Lofty AI, which uses a token model for people to buy in and lets them collect rent later that same day. Cool. Daniela Lang, a product marketer at the firm, says investors see this as an American dream opportunity that lets them build wealth in real estate. Fractional investment startups claim that they lower the barrier to investing in property and make it as easy as booking an Airbnb. At Arrived, 40% of investors are renters themselves. Amy Chu, a senior research analyst at the Center for Popular Democracy, a progressive advocacy group, says maybe some people will benefit from it, but more real estate investments may come at the cost of housing stability and risk worsening a system where for-profit investors can wreak havoc on low-income residents. It almost seems like a guarantee to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, so far, these securities, I guess that we can call them, they seem really close to REITs, right? A real estate investment trust share that tends to look at commercial real estate. Hmm. But this seems to be a version where they're focusing on residential real estate with a little touch, a sousong, if you will, of timeshare. <laughs> if most of like those people are yeah. renters are also the investors themselves. Yeah, though, the difference, I think, is that renters are not renting inside of what they're investing in. They are just separately renters, but they're making the point that, you know, it's a way for renters to invest in real estate at all. Yeah, but they're not really investing in real estate. The whole point of investing in real estate is you build equity. They're not owning a piece of these homes. If I understand this correctly, they're just getting a cut of the rental profits. It's almost working like a stock that throws off a dividend. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
I'm not 100% sure how they structure it, but if they purchase a house collectively and the value of that house goes up, your investment does go up proportionally as well. Right. It's still fractional mm, equity. Yeah. So it's basically just stock marketing a house, which, you know, for better or for worse, I guess. (laughs) So the concept first appeared a decade ago with a fund rise. The firm made it easier for people to invest in real estate portfolios with less money, says founder and CEO Ben Miller. Today, Fundrise has more than 387,000 active investors and a real estate portfolio worth $7 billion that includes apartments, industrial properties, and single-family rentals. Newer fractional startups play off that small investing concept, but let investors pick specific individual properties that are more often single-family homes. Which kind of makes sense, you know, It you as an individual might get your head around investing in an individual home more than, say, a REIT or the entire, you know, broad housing market. Yeah, but also... This is ripe for the kind of thing where it's like you can't see the thing you're actually investing in. They put a picture of a house and they describe the neighborhood, but there may be a very good reason why (laughs) they can't get this house unloaded. And yeah, I don't know. Exactly. Like those pictures are not showing the raccoons that are living and squatting. (laughs) Yeah. And not just that, but also there's algorithmic competition. So as more players join the real estate investment frenzy, technology is playing an increasingly important role. Big investors thrive on tech that sources the best properties and streamlines investing, making it harder for human buyers to compete. There's tech to automate rent collection and lease signing, putting distance between landlords and tenants. Automated background checks have become common, though they often reject prospective tenants based on incorrect reports. Landlords can automate eviction filings, creating higher turnover and maximizing profits. So harsh economic conditions have demanded younger people adjust. The average age of first-time homebuyers in the U.S. has risen to 36. People are marrying later, are more likely to have student loan payments, and have more stagnant wages. All the while, property prices are rising. In Phoenix, Arizona, the median home price in 2004 was $174,000. In 2023, it's $450,000. Wow. And average salaries from 2004 to 2021 increased 70%, not quite enough. (laughs) Yep. So that's part of what drew eminent Panish to the soapstone. Panish, who lives and rents her home in Los Angeles, 1,500 miles from the little brick house in Fayetteville, says she regrets not investing more when she first started and now has a handful of properties in her arrived portfolio. The average investor spends around $3,500 on five or six properties. Still, most people invest less than $1,000. And according to Arrived, it delivered $1.2 million in dividends for investors in 2022. Its portfolio of properties appreciated a total of $1.4 million over the same year, according to the company. Of course, all that depends on the very hot real yeah. estate market right now. The minute it crashes, all these little people are going to lose their money. Like That's the, how investing works. Anytime the average person is being drawn in to a complicated investment tool, they are the marks. Like, this is such a bad idea. I'm physically angry about it. I'm so curious, too, about like typically in investing, we talk about how different markets are not correlated. But if we start layering and getting the housing market to resemble more of the stock market, we're going to lose that diversification. Right. So it doesn't matter if you've got some company stock, you got a little bit of index funds, you got some real estate, if they're all moving and behaving the same way, you don't get that benefit right. of risk protection from diversification anymore. Sorry, that's my finance soapbox. And I'm a little curious to see how that goes. But 
not curious enough to like let this continue and then watch the yeah, <laughs> watch not, the trauma. Not unfold. curious enough to participate. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you've looked at any of the metrics comparing 2008 to where we are now across you know varying securities, it's feeling pretty similar. Yeah, yeah not only that, it's also revolving around single family homes. Like that deja vu is hitting pretty hard mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Well, at least we can hope that we get another really good movie with Steve Carell in it about this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. on a funny side note, Michael Lewis, the guy who wrote The Big Short, uh-huh. he had actually been following along and hanging out with Sam Bankman-Fried as FDX was collapsing. Uh, so I think he's already got his next title. Oh All right. Gosh. Okay. Well, I look I'm forward so to excited. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. Well, we'll keep it spicy then. Nice. (laughs) This is from Vice. Here is the FBI's contract to buy mass internet data. Oh, Oh, no. According to internal FBI documents obtained by Motherboard, which is the tech branch of Vice, Mm -hmm. the FBI paid tens of thousands of dollars for internet data known as NetFlow data. This is where I'm not necessarily in IT, so I kind of had to look into some stuff. But it's got URLs that you visited, cookies, and PCAP data, PCAP, which as far as I know is packet capture information. It's like they target specific machines with PCAP kind of and see what's flowing. But the FBI documents don't exactly show what it procured. It's vague. They don't mention what types of data they actually grabbed, which means they grabbed it all, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so in parallel to Motherboard's previous coverage of NetFlow sales, a whistleblower approached Senator Ron Wyden to let him know that the NCIS, I'm sure you've all seen the Yeah, the show, TV show, at least right? The commercial, right? Yeah, they were using that data without warrants. Uh, Mark Harmon would be very upset. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Wyden told Motherboard that, quote, It provides further evidence the FBI has purchased Internet data, which can reveal the websites Americans visit, as well as sensitive information, such as what doctor a person sees, their religion, or what dating sites they use. Mm -hmm. He goes on to say it is not acceptable for the government to go around the courts by using a credit card to buy private information, which is why he has proposed the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act to ban the purchase of this kind of private data. Interesting. I'm sure it won't pass. But no. Hey, thanks for trying. <laughs> but yeah. it is a it is a nice, like really solid legal argument to make that this is a right mm-hmm. to privacy issue. Yeah. So the FBI's response? No comment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's better than the, we look forward to working with the legislatures on crafting. (laughs) Yeah, in 2017, a document showed the FBI spent 76 grand to purchase NetFlow data. And they bought other types of data, too. I was just thinking 76 grand is not that much. Like, honestly, Mm. maybe we need to make these little tiny investor (laughs) options where you too can own a tiny fraction of somebody's personal data. (laughs) I mean, don't we already? Like, think of how many birthdays or phone numbers you may still have memorized. Oh, it's true. One. I've got one memorized. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. They're all gone. <laughs> and it's mine. It's my own one. I don't. Right. I, yeah. <laughs> hey, you're doing better than I am. I have to really stop and think, wait, how old am I? What is my data? I don't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, from SmithsonianMag.com, we have this interesting little cross section of art and politics called why French authorities placed a young Pablo Picasso under surveillance. Mm. 
So Picasso was born in Barcelona, which is officially considered part of Spain, but is technically in the autonomous community of Catalonia. Hmm. And over the centuries, Catalonia has been at the heart of a lot of back and forth conflicts, both between Catalonia and Spain in an are we independent, are we not kind of way, and also between Catalonia and France in an uh, actually maybe some of Spain's land belongs to us kind of way. (laughs) And this matters because in 1900, when Pablo Picasso was an up and coming artist, Catalonia was again in one of those periods of political unrest where they were being oppressed and discriminated against by, quote, real Spaniards. And so a lot (sighs) of them were fleeing to France. But France at this time was a little on the fence about the whole thing, because on the one hand, they did like it when Spain was weakened by internal political problems. But they were also maybe a little nervous about all of these politically active foreigners moving into their country. And they maybe had reason to be suspicious in general, because in 1894, the French president Sadie Carnot had been assassinated by an Italian immigrant and anarchist. Also that same year, a member of the French army had been caught selling military secrets to the Germans. On the other hand, the French government had wrongfully scapegoated a Jewish man for that particular instance of treason, and their quickness to jump on a foreigner rather than finding the real criminal right away was evidence for others in France to say, look, you're just being racist. The immigrants aren't actually the problem. But it's fair to say that things were unstable, both in Spain and France, and everyone was a little paranoid. So when Picasso came to Paris in 1901 to escape persecution in Catalonia, he was an automatic candidate for them to keep an eye on. And at first, they were just taking notes because you have to remember at this point, Picasso was not remotely famous. He was just another Catalonian living in a cheap and crime ridden part of the city. And the way the police would keep tabs on these neighborhoods was through a network of undercover informants who would basically sit in the local cafes all day and report back on whatever gossip they heard about the residents. And Picasso wasn't really aware of any of this at the time, partly because he did not speak any French and partly because he was so intensely focused on his art. One of the big reasons he had come to Paris was because there was a gallery owner there who had offered him a showing, and Picasso decided that it should be all brand new art. So over the course of just seven weeks, he painted 64 original works that were all heavily influenced by his new surroundings, including, quote, flamboyant dwarfs, glassy-eyed morphine addicts, flirtatious old women wearing too much makeup, and weary mothers dragging their children behind them. That's basically like what Midjourney does. <laughs> right? <laughs> but this is where things started to go badly for him, because while most art critics saw Picasso capturing the nuances of poverty, the local police chief saw him condemning the injustices of poverty. He was especially concerned about a painting that depicted soldiers beating a beggar on the ground, and another that showed women begging for money and bourgeois men pushing them away. Which, I think if you basically document the thing you see on your street and the police chief is like, you're mad about this. Like, well, maybe you're secretly feeling bad about this as well. Like, all I did was show you what I see out my window. So it's the early days of filming the police? Right, exactly. <laughs> very, very slowly. <laughs> very slowly, right. The police chief also went back to his informant's notes at that point, which, by the way, the four informants in Picasso's neighborhood were codenamed Finot, Fourier, Bornibus, and Giroflay, which isn't at all relevant. They were just really funny names to me. And <laughs> the chief saw that Picasso was going out every night with his friend Père Magnac, who they had already decided was an anarchist and might have been. He was a little more politically active. But they were like, that's it. Case closed. Picasso is an anarchist. And for the next 40 years, the French police openly surveilled and harassed Picasso, even or perhaps especially once he became famous. 
They gave him a ton of crap when he declined to volunteer for the French army in World War I. And he's like, I'm a pacifist. And they're like, no, you're an anarchist. And even when he joined the Communist Party in 1944, they were still convinced that it was all just an elaborate cover for his secret anarchist beliefs. And that's kind of it. I guess the lesson here is don't get in trouble with the French police because they will never leave you alone again. I don't know. What a target for them to fixate on. Like passionate, political, outspoken. Isn't that like part of the French identity DNA? <laughs> right. They're supposed to be on board with that. They should have been like, yeah. yes, this guy. Yeah. This guy. Oh, he's not French. Okay. <laughs> he he might have spoken French, but didn't because he knew if, if you try as a foreigner, they'll get very upset with you. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Okay, we have talked a lot about lab-grown meat here on this mm. podcast, but the BBC News has a bit of a sticky wicket here because Italy has moved to ban it in order to protect oh. its food heritage. Oh, Italy. <laughs> <laughs> That's so adorable. Mm. So if the proposals go through, breaking the ban would attract fines of up to 60,000 euro, which is wow. not Jeez. insignificant, right? Obviously, the farmers' lobby praised the move, but it was a low blow for some animal welfare groups, which have highlighted mm. lab-made meat as a solution to issues, including protecting the environment from carbon emissions and food safety. The proposed bill came hard on the heels of a series of government decrees banning the use of flour derived from insects such as crickets and locusts in pizza or pasta. Wow. Ministers have cited Italy's prized Mediterranean diet as their motivation for both measures. The proposals approved by ministers on Tuesday, it seeks to ban synthetic foods produced from animal cells without killing the animal, <laughs> way specific, and it would also apply to lab-produced fish and and synthetic milk, too. And this is in part because last November, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration cleared cell culture chicken for human consumption after careful evaluation. So far, there has been no approval that has been sought, at least, from the European Food Safety Authority. But within the European Commission, it has been suggested that cell-based agriculture like cultured meat could be considered a promising, innovative solution for healthy and environmentally friendly food systems. Like, they're, they're staying pretty open to it. And of course, commentators have pointed out that Italy would not be able to oppose the sale of synthetic meat produced within the European Union when it does gain approval because of the EU's free movement of goods and services. So it's time for Ital exit. They're like, this is going to be the thing. Ital exit. I mean, it could happen. This is we're in that timeline yeah. of like, didn't see any of this coming. So, OK. <laughs> So International Organization for Animal Protection, OIPA, stressed that lab-produced meat, while it came from animal cells, was an ethical alternative that did not harm animal welfare, environmental sustainability, or food safety. But the head of the dairy industry group, Paolo Zanetti, praised the government's decision. He said, milk producers are facing a paradox. On the one hand, colleagues are being asked to invest in making their product more environmentally friendly, while on the other... Investors with no scruples, and that's a direct quote, were promoting a product that was anything but natural under the pretext of protecting the environment. Mm -hmm. <sighs> oh, Italy. Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated issue. I fall on a couple of different sides depending on what angle you look at. 
Like, I feel like there's no point in protecting the farming industry in the same way there's no point in protecting any industry that's on its way out. Like, you don't protect the buggy whip makers. It's just not going to happen. Cars are coming. And so (laughs) from that perspective, I'm like, that's dumb. It's never going to work. It's just going to draw out the ripping the Band-Aid off. On the other hand, I am still personally very suspicious of lab-grown food as a nutritional profile. You know, you end up in this thing where it's like if all of your food is a monoculture, then one thing can take it out. And also one disease can make everybody very sick. Diversity, right? Yeah. Genetic diversity, I think, is useful. So maybe there's a way to do the lab-grown meat, but you're taking it from lots of different meat samples. Yeah. And you still get to have... Italy already has these guilds of food artisans that say, like, this is Italian basil or this is Italian pesto. Like, they have these organizations already set up. Right. Why don't you just say, here is a label that means Italy far-right food. (laughs) Right, right, right. We can still have a cricket pizza because, hey, maybe the protein content is a lot better. And for people who have celiac, that's the solution for them. Yeah. Well, and all that means is they're going to call it something else. It's going to obviously be a cricket pizza, but they're going to call <gasps> it a, a krigitza or something different. And then Yes, like, a pizza. Yeah. You can't <laughs> ban round, flat foods. Like, that's not going to be an option. So. <laughs> Rice cakes on the firing squad. Exactly. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Do any of y'all by any chance know the song Disgustipated by Tool? I do not. Okay, well, that'll be a deep cut for some of our listeners. Right. <laughs> this article comes to us from gizmodo.com. It's titled Plants Yell When They're Stressed Out. Oh, sweet! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so researchers in Israel have found that tomato and tobacco plants that are dealing with stress factors make a popping sound that can be detected over three feet away, a reaction that seems tantamount to a human moaning in anguish or yelling in pain. <laughs> I thought this would be a good article to follow the plant-based meat one with. <laughs> right, right. Take that, vegetarians. You plants can scream. <laughs> so that is actually what the song Disgustipated is about. It's about the story of a harvest of a carrot field, and they manufactured the sound of a field of carrots screaming while being <laughs> killed by size, basically. They don't pop. The, I mean, they, they synthesize the sounds. It's not like human sounds or whatever. But it is unsettling, and it's a fun song if you like unsettling things. Uh, so <laughs> plants were previously known to produce ultrasonic vibrations, but the new work reveals that the sounds produced by at least two plants are airborne. Yossi Yovel, a neuroecologist at Tel Aviv University and a co-author of the paper, said in the journal release, We know that there's a lot of ultrasound out there. Every time you use a microphone, you find that a lot of stuff produces sounds that we humans cannot hear. But the fact that plants are making these sounds opens a whole new avenue of opportunities for communication, eavesdropping, and exploitation of these sounds. The researchers recorded tomato and tobacco plants in a soundproof chamber and in an ordinary greenhouse. They harassed the plants by not watering them for a few days and by stem cutting. Both approaches elicited pop or click-like sounds from the plants. Unstressed plants also emitted sounds, but far fewer. The stressed plants emitted between 30 and 50 clicks per hour. The team thinks the sounds may be caused by air bubbles in the plant's vascular systems. It's not clear whether the sounds serve any purpose, such as an attempt to communicate with other organisms. And there's a pretty funny photo of a cactus plant just sitting there with two microphones being pointed at it very closely, like it's on a podcast or something. (laughs) (laughs) Although, you know, I guess it's screaming in this instance. But uh, (laughs) the pop sounds are beyond human ear frequencies, but fall within the realm that other mammals, insects, and perhaps other plants could pick them up. 
it's possible that other organisms could have evolved to hear and respond to these sounds, said Lilac Hadani, an evolutionary biologist at Tel Aviv University and co-author of the paper in the same release. For example, a moth that intends to lay eggs on a plant or an animal that intends to eat a plant could use the sounds to help guide their decision. The jury is still out on plant intelligence, but some experts do think that plants are conscious in their own way. Plenty more work will need to be done to understand the exact nature of these sounds, but the study is certainly an intriguing addition to our knowledge of how plants function. Which, I just love how very directly science-brained this is. It's like, well, we harassed the plants, we cut the plants, and then they made a noise in response to the plants, but we can't say if that's actually a cry of pain or not. Well, it's like, what is pain? Like, something can definitely neurologically feel pain, but then you start justifying, like, well, but is it conscious? Yeah, you know, you just can't escape the fact that life requires life to survive, fundamentally. Right, mm-hmm. yeah, because your only other choice if everything feels pain is, well, I guess I'll just starve. Guess what? That's painful. Yeah, That's yeah. yeah. Those plants are causing me pain. How dare they? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess I could always eat rocks. <laughs> you could try. Mm-hmm. Until they study that, at least. Uh-huh. <laughs> They just make this like really sad sigh instead of a popping noise. It's like, like, all right. (laughs) Next link. Next link. Okay, this comes from Petapixel. AI can recreate images from human brainwaves. It was a matter of time. I mean... Yep, not even your thoughts are going to be private. Doesn't seem like we'll need the neural chip to do so either. Nothing implanted. So researchers at the National University in Singapore, the Chinese University at Hong Kong, and Stanford have figured out a way to decode human brain waves and show the image that person is picturing in their mind. In a paper published last November, the team led by Zijiao Chen used brain scans of participants as they were shown more than a thousand images while inside an fMRI machine. So the participants laid down in the machine and it recorded the brain signals associated with the pictures they were shown. Then the researchers sent that data through an AI model to train it to associate specific brain patterns with the specific images. After the training on the first set of data is complete, the participants were shown new images and the machine detected the brainwaves and generated a shorthand description of what brainwaves related to. Then plop that new description or prompt into an AI image generator and out comes an image. And it matches, it's not exactly the same match, but it's close. Mm -hmm. It'll match color, shape, as well as the semantic meaning of the original image 84% of the time now. And this is new. Yeah. Yeah. So for example, imagine something like a stagecoach, right? We've all got a good picture of a stagecoach, but I'm guessing what's in your head and what are in mine are similar, but not the same. It'd be weird if they were the same. Right. And in much the same way, it would not be an exact stagecoach you were thinking of that the generator creates, but it would be close. We would know you were thinking of a stagecoach. So do they clarify whether these are individual algorithms? They are. It takes about 20 hours to train the AI model on each individual's brain activity. So Mm -hmm. yes, it is specific to you because how you and I think would be different. Yeah. But, you know, I could see us figuring out a way to read blood flow without needing an fMRI machine. Yeah. But positives on it could be applications for the severely disabled. Yeah. Or if somebody is actually in a vegetative state. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think if they start digging in my brain, they're not going to like what they find. <laughs> I think it's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include How Paris Kicked Out the Cars, The Border Town That Forgot It Was Part of the U.S., 
And a big rover aims to be like UPS for the moon. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at Patreon.com slash DamnInterestingWeek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisberg Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.